The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Friday, June 22nd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I wanted to check back in on the name game. Muller, Muller, Bobuller, Banana, Fana, Fofurler. You may remember I've been chronicling all the spasms of outrage and ire expressed by people who think that our fundamental liberties are being threatened by government overreach and who who encapsulates this overreach more than Bob Mueller and Rod Rosenstein, except these people who think that the democracy is going down the tubes because of these two guys who want to make sure the president doesn't send the democracy down the tubes. They sometimes criticize the gentleman as Mueller, And Rosenstein, it's like issuing warnings about doom, but calling it dupe. There's also Republican Congressman Jim Jordan's co-sponsoring of a bipartisan bill to protect reporters. This is a little bit of an end around. I don't question his motives, but he has found common cause with Democrats. But he's been talking about in service of what I presume to be his larger goal of stymieing the investigation of Bob Mueller. He is also talking about how the Justice Department has overreached by seizing the records of the reporter, Ali Watkins. Here he was on CNN talking about how Times reporter Allie Watkins got her record seized. Uh, Allie Watson had all her material just grabbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this whole situation with the, Allie Watson as a reporter from the New York Times and Mr. Wolf. And then we have this situation which developed just two weeks ago with Miss Watson. Yeah, not Watson, Watkins. We appreciate your championing the cause of the First Amendment congressman, but her name is Allie Watkins. And by the way, let's just make clear, His game is to throw discredit on all of the deep state, the FBI, the Justice Department, everything about the Trump investigation. So he will champion the cause of Allie Watkins, or maybe one day he'll say, oh, Allie Watkins. No, not her. I was talking about Allie Watson. That's that's what I was talking about. But I do feel, and I'll put on the record, that I think journalists have been fairly credulous about Allie Watkins' tactics in the matter of how she gleaned the information she gleaned. Her boyfriend was the man who's being charged with giving up Senate intel information. And I also think journalists have been fairly cynical about the legitimacy of the government's actions. Just this knee-jerk, oh, this is Trump sending a message. Susan Hennessy of the Lawfare Podcast also suggested to me, and I think this was a good point, that what Watkins and her boyfriend or her ex-boyfriend James Wolfe were doing was exposing a U.S. citizen who was caught in a CIA trap. Yes, I know it was Carter Page. And yes, it's good public information that it's out there. But uh, I think there might be a legitimate purpose in the government actually looking at the materials that a girlfriend had. Not a journalist, but if the journalist is a girlfriend, then it's a little bit more of a gray area than many journalists who have been covering the story are letting on. But what we're really talking about is names, and the subject of names. And that's why this week, earlier this week, we talked about Rudy Giuliani being asked about FBI agent Peter Strzok. He decried the guy. Probe, this Russian probe that began by, with Peter uh, Stroh's in charge. And then, of course, Steve Bannon was asked about Strzok and he took aim at the guy. The stork. And so, of course, since there is no Stroh's and Stork, 
I was excited to hear what the inspector general himself would say. Michael Horowitz was in front of Congress. He was the one who put the reports out there that got the Strzok texts with his girlfriend, Lisa Page, put into the uh, public record and in the public eye. So here is Michael Horowitz speaking with Senator Mike Crapo. First voice you'll hear is Horowitz. I, I think it's clear from certainly the email, the text messages we've talked about with regard to Mr. Strzok that he had, as we say here, a biased state of mind. And as I understand from reading the, the report, uh, not only Mr. Strzok, but... Horowitz actually uses a pronunciation I haven't heard before, more of a Strzok. Crapo, he said, struck. You know, I will accept anything. Struk, struck, struck. I'm going to use the Jeopardy rule for spelling on Final Jeopardy. You have to get all the consonants and in the right order, and then vowel sounds are basically interchangeable. All right. So, struck or struck, but definitely no strohs or stork. Horowitz, by the way, later did that thing with Senator Crapo that we all kind of want to do or hope that we don't do, do. What we say here is not, as Senator Crapo, Crapo mentioned, which is, you know what, close enough and I'll allow it. Just, you know what, if any, just give me a rhyme. Senator Kennedy of Louisiana did just that later in the hearing. 3316, Lisa Page. Also, did you hear Trump made a comment about the size of his, I'm not going to use the word, it rhymes with wang doodle. Rhymes with wang doodle. And it is sad, I just have to say in the end, that it is sad when FBI officials are inviting each other over to hang strudel. On the show today, I never before really cared about the attire of a first lady, any first lady. But now I really do care, don't you? But first, Francesca Ramsey is here for a conversation that escalates quite quickly. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Francesca Ramsey is oh so many things. She was a viral sensation and still is, but that's not the notable credit anymore. But after having a video that, like I said, went viral, she got an agent. She was booked on uh, Anderson Cooper, or it was just called Anderson at the time. She had an audition for Saturday Night Live. That didn't go so great, but she got MTV. She was on The Nightly Show, and now she's out with a new book. Well, that escalated quickly. Memoirs and Mistakes of an Accidental Activist. Hello, Francesca. 
Francesca. Thank you for having me. And kudos to you on nailing that title. I love when people give it the dramatic effect. Yeah, I like to uh, I like to lean into the colon that is implied yes. after quickly. Memoirs of an accidental activist. Now, when I uh, identified you, when I was talking to my girlfriend, I said, I'm talking to Francesca Ramsey, who she, I first said, well, she's a comedian because you're on the nightly show mm-hmm. and you mostly do comedy. But I guess your official bio says social justice advocate. What do you want to be known as more? necessarily know that I lean into one over the other. I like to build myself as someone that is doing work that is hopefully making people laugh, but also making them think. So yes. I think it's a good dose of both. Do you do stand up? I did stand up for about six years before I moved to New York. And then when I got to New York, I was living above this unemployed opera singer who was singing at all hours of the day and the night. That kept me from wanting to have a lot of late nights where I was out and then potentially having difficulty getting to work. And so I decided to pull back from stand-up and really lean into making YouTube videos because I could do those from home on my own schedule. So to to determine this comedian activist thing, and of course, all your comedy, all your performances shot through with how you view the world. When you were doing stand-up, would there be long stretches when it was just a joke about a joke and you weren't making a broader point about the world? You know, I think for me, the reason that I dubbed myself as an accidental activist is because I accidentally figured out that I had this passion and talent for being able to talk about identity and important issues through a comedic lens. And so when I was doing stand-up, I wasn't setting out to make some deep social commentary. I was talking about my life experiences and Shit White Girls Say, which was my viral video in 2012. Not to be racist, but... Not to sound racist, but... Not to sound racist. My grandma hates collards. That video having such a huge impact really told me, wow, maybe this is something that I should follow because I'm good at it. It's starting really important conversations. And I and I like the way that people are relating to this video and saying like, wow, this is a story that I needed to hear or this was something that I needed to see reflected and, and I wasn't seeing before. When you were doing all the YouTube videos before you found your first success, were you doing it just because that's your generation and that's how you communicate to the world? Or were you doing it more with a conscious eye of this is a bit of a calling card? I could get better at uh, communicating over the internet, which is how people communicate these days. So, you know, I'm thinking of it from more of a, uh, a professional advancement point of view. You know, it's interesting because that's definitely how a lot of people are going into social media these days. But I started making videos in 2006, which was a year after YouTube was founded. So there was no AdSense partner program. You, no one was making money. No one. There was no Issa Rae. There was no Broad City crossover. It just was not a thing. What was YouTube? Uh, YouTube was a place that people posted like cat videos yeah. and like just weird stuff. I had been making post about my hair. I went natural. I have I have locks. I have dreadlocks that are a little bit down past my butt. And so I was looking for help on how to style my hair. I couldn't find any. So I was posting wow. imagine, online. Imagine a time when you couldn't find Oh, this is the truth. Video. You really, you could not, you know, and we are very much in a very different time when it comes yeah. to black women's hair, visibility, natural hair. At that time, I went online looking for help with my hair and all I found were white people talking about dreadlocks. And I was like, I'm not going to put peanut butter on my hair. I'm going to do it this way. So I started making content, posting pictures. And then when YouTube came around, I was like, oh, maybe I'll make videos because I see an opportunity here where no one that looks like me is talking about this thing. And so I'm going to do it. 
Now, at the time, there wasn't a playbook for the viral star or someone who achieved notoriety that way, but there are many ways to get noticed. What are the pros and cons of the way you got noticed? I would say that the content that propelled me into the spotlight The pros were it started an important conversation, but the cons were I'm a black woman and I'm talking about race on the Internet. And there are a lot of people that are very upset and very threatened by that. And instead of actually being self-reflective, they decided to say nasty things about me, send me hateful messages, just show their ass, just be a fool on the Internet. Tell me about Decoded, which is a. It's MTV, but it never actually aired on MTV. No, it's a web air? series. Yeah. It's a web series about race and pop culture. As the name suggests, the show is all about decoding and breaking things down so people can understand them. So we've done things like why does privilege make people so upset? The real story of Thanksgiving. Are fried chicken and watermelon racist? Spoiler, they are not. But there's historical context behind those when they're associated but, with black people. But isn't there also uh, just um, delicious context. (laughs) I mean, I don't know why anyone would say that they don't like fried chicken or watermelon. And I feel like that is really fucked up to project that stereotype onto black people because the foods are delicious. Yes, But it's important to actually understand how those stereotypes have been used to, to shape the perceptions that people have of black people. And, you know, the show really says, look, sometimes you don't understand why you think this about this person or this behavior. There's context there that you have to understand in order to be more sensitive to that group or their experience. And that's what we try to do. Right. So the the, the insidious thing about that is not the inaccuracy of the stereotype. It's that it's wielded as a cudgel. It's used as a knife in the same way that if somehow uh, my people, the Jewish people, or my other people, the Italian people, were made to apologize for liking, say, cream cheese or marinara <laughs> sauce. Well, I mean, that's the... Oh, no, I'm eating cream cheese and everyone knows I'm Jewish <laughs> and everyone's going to see it. Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing is that stereotypes can be used to uphold oppression. I learned about, you know, the stereotype of Jewish folks being Meisners with money. Cheap. cheap. I was going to use, I was trying to, you know, use a little more delicately sensitive. (laughs) Multisyllabic. Right. Okay. So understanding how Jewish folks started getting into banking and that there was a time where Christians were not allowed to participate in banking. And then that was how like there was a quote unquote monopoly in that sense. And then this stereotype was created to suggest that somehow you couldn't trust Jewish folks. Right. Our show says, look, people have questions. You don't have to feel stupid. You don't have to feel bad about not understanding. We will explain it to you in a funny, short, digestible way that hopefully informs you and and helps the way that you move through the world and be more sensitive towards others. I've always thought that there is a whole bunch of stereotypes that were just not true or you couldn't prove that. It, Jewish people, for instance, are more cheap than Belgian people. I don't know. You, I, I, I doubt that you could really prove that. And then the whole thing about, as we were talking about, black people liking fried chicken, since everyone does, I don't know if there's much greater correlation, but, you know, 
people growing up in the South. That's a huge thing that people would have in picnics and stuff. But then there was the other kind of stereotype, which is the Asian model minority stereotype. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is actually <laughs> a stereotype that's supposed to be a compliment. Oh, but yeah. But because it is basic. But I, there, are a lot of co- yes. there are a lot of stereotypes that are meant as compliments. Yes. So a rule of thumb is when you look at an individual and immediately say, oh, you belong to this So now category, I know who you are. Then you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Not I mean, too hard. Because at the end of the day, what you're saying is I don't see you as an individual. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting to know you as a person. I am deciding that you are this thing without giving you the chance to just be who you are. And, you know, the model minority stereotype is very interesting because it's essentially used to tell other minorities or marginalized people if they could do it, so can you. So then this might be interesting. It's called let's throw it at Francesca. If it is true that it is something to pause about before you treat the individual as part of a group, then why is the phrase and concept of white privilege so legitimate? A stereotype is a falsehood about a group of people. A privilege is what informs your experience and how you move through the world. And so the fact that I am able-bodied, I can use any bathroom in this entire building, in this entire world, and know that I'm going to be able to have access to that restroom. Whereas there are places, there are restaurants, there are buildings, there are restrooms that people that have disabilities don't have access to. For me, I try to talk about privilege again by acknowledging my own privilege in order to help other people understand it, because unfortunately, white privilege is the one everybody is familiar with. So people assume that that means, oh, well, then I'm the only one that has privilege. And you're saying that my life has been easy and it hasn't been easy because my parents got a divorce when I was in third grade and it was very difficult for me. And it's like, OK, I that sucks. But you still have privilege. Yeah. You just did the uh, shit white girl say voice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically, it is my voice. Um, but yeah, the shit white girl say voice is like a little bit more nasally. Um, it's based on one friend? It is based basically. on a friend. It's a, a girlfriend I grew up with, and she actually came to New York and was on Anderson with me. They flew mm-hmm. her out so that she could be on the Have show. Have you still been, are you still friendly I to saw her uh, last week when I was on tour. I, LA was one of my stops, and she and a bunch of people I went to high school came out. I think... I think there was about like 10 or 15 of them. It was very cool. Do they all think, do the white girls of that group all think that they've contributed one or two lines? I mean, I got a number of text messages when that video came out that that were asking me which lines were about them. It seems that some of the lines are more insidious than others. Like some of those are, you almost say, with affection. Well, I think you have to remember, and, and this is something that I talk about in the book, that especially when it comes to those privileges, you don't necessarily always understand or realize how they influence your life. And so the comments in that video, many of them are not said maliciously. Yeah, You know, people would often say things to me like, I don't see you as black, which I think that they were really trying to say to me, you're just like me. They weren't Again, understanding that what they were saying is that there's something wrong with being black. Why wouldn't you see me as black? I am black and it's okay to see me that way. I don't think that they meant it in a negative way, but it still is harmful and hurtful. Since they are your age, maybe it means one thing, but it's all so so much of this is generational that the progressive thought of 
10 or 20 years ago is now the regressive thought of today to some extent. Like Colbert always does that joke about I don't see color. That was something that people would legitimately say and legitimately mean with the best of intentions that even the black intelligentsia would say, well, that's progress. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I know I remember that quote of, oh, I'm not black. I'm OJ. Right. OJ was saying I transcended color. But. When I'm talking about my experiences as a black person, the last thing I want you to tell me is, oh, but I don't see you as black. I'm like, but I am black and I'm talking to you about an experience that was influenced by me being. That's like saying to somebody with glasses, I don't see you with glasses. Like, I I have glasses on. Like, I need my glasses. They're part of, if I don't have them on, it's hard for me to see. Like, help me find them. Where are they? Like, yeah. how can you tell somebody that I don't see what influences who you are and how you move through this world is very dismissive even if people don't intend for it to be is there anything if we go back from when you started doing the videos you know and so it's six years and people change their opinions new information i'm thinking of rashida jones and she did this documentary i think it's called young girls wanted Mm. and basically it was about trafficking and the tone of it was that these women are victims and in many of the stories a lot of people were upset about that right so in a lot of the stories they definitely did seem like victims but she has said she's come around to thinking of it differently and thinking that she should have thought that many of the women involved have more agency and by only portraying it as a victim story she wasn't you know doing Stigmatiz- the best. she stig- was stigmatizing a little yes. bit. i'm wondering if there's any thing like that in your life oh that's a really great another great question we've done some episodes not necessarily episodes but things just in my own history and the way that I've talked about things. And and for me, that was an important thing to dig into those mistakes in the book. Um, You know, I deal with a lot of harassment and a lot of it comes from men. Mm -hmm. And there have been times in the past where I have said things like, oh, you know, you need to get laid as a criticism of some of the guys that have said nasty things about me. Even though I don't agree with the things that those people have said about me, I don't think it is fair to assert that a man's failing is somehow tied to his sexual prowess. And I think that that has negative repercussions, not just for that guy, but for any man who hears my response to criticism and says, well, if you criticize me, then that means that you need to get laid and you must not be getting laid. And if you were getting laid, then maybe your opinions would be more in line with mine, or maybe that would make you a nicer, better person. That's just not true. And if dudes aren't getting laid, I don't think that makes them a loser. I don't think that makes them a bad person. I also don't think that getting laid means you're going to be a nicer person or that your values are going to be in line with mine. Francesca Ramsey is the author of, well, that escalated quickly. I hope I'm saying it right. Well, that escalated quickly. (laughs) Memoirs and mistakes of an accidental activist. Great to meet you, Francesca. Thank you so much for having me. I honestly have to commend you because you asked me things that I really had not thought about before. I think you killed it. You nailed it. Wow. This is this is what this is the subtext of all my interviews. <laughs> Getting my guests to From compliment me. From now on, me. you should end on every interview by asking, "What was the best part of this interview? What did I nail?" And now the spiel. Not since Lucretia Rudolph wore a petticoat emblazoned with the phrase, the credit mobilier scandal was fake.
Has a first lady's choice of fashion proved so polarizing? Maybe it was the time that Ida Saxton McKinley drew the words, bimetallism sucks, one on each eyelid. But not since then has polite society been in such a kerfuffle. Polite society, by the way, now down to four people who spend most of their time writing letters longhand to PBS whenever they show the animal's genitals during a nature documentary. But the Melania Trump deed was to wear a jacket that said, I really don't care, do you, to visit a child immigrant detention center. Is the first lady crazy or kidding? Is she daft or punking us? Is she daft punking us? Dumber, stupid, more immoral. I think it is a choice because the first lady's spokesperson defended it with logic that wasn't so much illogical and not even so much a lie as it was a perfect setup to a punchline. If you lead Colbert and Kimmel to water. The first lady spokesman says it's a jacket. There was no hidden message. (laughs) Right. It's definitely not hidden. Her spokeswoman said, it's a jacket. There was no hidden message. (laughs) Well, no one thought the message was hidden. It was written in big letters on the back, but. Senator Heflin will be spending the break sitting around the house. It's so stupid and it's so ridiculous. And the coat was just so Trumpian. Remember the clamor of a couple weeks back when Melania Trump wanted to bow out of the public eye and members of the media reacted by saying, no, Melania, you mustn't leave. After all, we pay members of your staff to support your unpaid duties. Can we all give Melania her wish and just let her pursue on her own time and in private and without cameras, pursue whatever fashion statements bordering on hate speech she wants to pursue. Melania, she's trapped in a castle by the British king. Now, remember the plot of Shrek 2, where the lady ogre was actually a beautiful princess inside? I think this is the reverse. Looks like beauty really is the beast. Here's a rule of thumb. If the last name is Trump, we could use a lot less of you in the public sphere. So do you know the work of uh, Robin Gavan, the fashion writer? She's the only fashion writer ever to win a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. So when she won uh, a dozen years ago, the Pulitzer Committee uh, would go to lengths to explain why they were giving a fashion writer a Pulitzer. And she would have this little spiel where she would say something like, you know, your clothes say something. And then she would talk about how clothes, when you think about it, really do communicate. Here she was on NPR's Talk of the Nation five years ago. I think some people, particularly those who are very accustomed to being in the in the public eye, have uh, gotten a certain kind of eloquence with their style, and they have a very clear understanding about how some things come across, and they have a very clear understanding of exactly what it is that they want to say. She was talking about first ladies specifically there, by the way. And so it strikes me that this first lady really is saying something through the clothes she's wearing by wearing clothes that literally say something. And that something is the thing that it said, which is that she doesn't care. But also, it's just the latest example of the Trump administration taking a dog whistle, smashing it underfoot, grinding it into the ground, and just putting their fingers between their lips and issuing a shrill. And so dogs and men and 
possibly wildebeests come running. Gavan won her Pulitzer for a bunch of columns, one of which was about the perhaps unintentional signaling of Vice President Dick Cheney. This was the time when he wore a parka to a commemoration at Auschwitz. And she writes, Cheney stood out in a sea of black-coated world leaders because he was wearing an olive drab parka with a fur-trimmed hood. It is embroidered with his name. She goes on to write, but symbolism is powerful. The vice president might have been warm in his parka, ski cap, and hiking boots, but they had the unfortunate effect of suggesting that he was more concerned with his own comfort than the reason for braving the cold at all. So think about this. During the Bush administration, which was an administration that sent many thousands of people, Americans, to their deaths in wars that were unnecessary, spent many billions, possibly trillions of dollars, So they made horrible mistakes, but what was considered an affront during the Bush administration was dressing warmly, but a bit sloppily, to an event that demanded solemnity. During the Trump administration, an affront is dismissively throwing starburst while in conversation with the German chancellor, turning your back on the entire Western order, and wearing a coat that tells us all to shove it. Symbolism is powerful. But the Trump administration, as obsessed as they are with their never wavering assertions of strength and power, yet the Trumps have given up on the power of symbolism by only engaging in unmissable texts. No subtext for them. They don't need to hint and they don't need to signal their cruelty. They wear it on their sleeve or in the first lady's case, on their backs. The Gist was produced by producers, that's what they do, Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, yeah, yeah, yeah. But most importantly, Mary Wilson is moving on. The senior producer, Mary Wilson was raised Catholic, which means she is meticulous, but also driven by the feeling that she's done something wrong, which, to speak very selfishly, is a great quality in a producer. Thank you, Catholicism. But also, she's inquisitive. She's passionate. She is deeply ethical. If Mary signed off on something, I knew I was in the clear. And not to brag, she 64% of the time would sign off on it. I was thinking of the highest compliment that I could give Mary that would embarrass Mary. And I was also thinking of the highest compliment I could give that she would actually take in stride. So in order, they are these. Mary Wilson is a great person and a great journalist. And if I ever find the son of a bitch who took her away from this show in order to do some more exciting show in an unrelated development, Steve Lichtai is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. The gist. And you hear a name like Mike Pesca. You know that, guys. The guy has it easy. On the other hand... Mary Wilson's have to work a little harder up front. Oom-peru-de-peru-du-peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>